Welcome to Creating a Family. Let's talk about infertility. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am the host as well as the director of Creating a Family. You can find lots of resources on infertility at our website, creatingafamily.org. Today, we're going to be talking about the impact of over-the-counter drugs or medications on fertility. Not only is the use of of over-the-counter medications in general increasing, but many more over-the-counter versions of formerly prescription-only medications are becoming available. And it's vital to understand the potential influences of these potentially seemingly benign drugs on human fertility. Today, we're going to be talking with Dr. Kathleen Tucker. She has been working as a lab scientific director in human IVF laboratories for almost 30 years, and she was the scientific director for one of the largest programs in the Netherlands, where her interest in the effects of over-the-counter medication on semen and eggs first began. She currently acts as an advisor for Egg Chain, and she has her own consulting business, K.E. Tucker Consulting. We will also be talking with Dr. Angeline Beltzo. She is the CEO and Chief Medical Officer of Bios Fertility Institute. She is board certified in obstetrics and gynecology and in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. And she has been practicing since 1991. She was formerly on the board of Creating a Family where we greatly benefited from her guidance. So welcome Dr. Beltzo and Dr. Tucker to Creating a Family. Nice to be here. Yeah, so excited to be with you today. All right. The research has found that the impact of over-the-counter medications, OTC meds, on fertility has increased. It's becoming increasingly more of an issue. And there, there are three reasons that the research has found. One, people are taking more medications now in general than in the past. Two, people are waiting longer to start a family and age is associated with greater medication use, whether we like it or not. And three, people are experiencing more chronic diseases at earlier ages and chronic diseases thus lend themselves to to people taking more medication. So taken together, these factors have increased the number of prescribed and over-the-counter drugs being taken by women and men attempting to get pregnant with or without fertility treatment. So at the beginning, let me just point out to everyone that talk to your doctor with any concerns you have regarding both prescription and non-prescription medications. It's important that you talk with somebody who knows your specific situation uh, and not rely just on what we are saying here today. All right, so let's talk about, we're going to start by talking about the impact on, we're going to work our way down various common over-the-counter medications. And I want to talk about how each of those may impact natural conception, impact of uh, conception through fertility treatment, as well as the impact on pregnancy. Uh, And let's start with the NSAIDs, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. They are one of the most common, probably if not the most common, over-the-counter medication taken. They would include things such as aspirin, which would be brand names like Bayer, Bufferin, St. Joseph, things like that, ibuprofen, uh, brand names Advil, Motrin, Excedrin, which is a brand name, which is a combination of acetaminophen, aspirin, and caffeine, naproxen, which is uh, brand names Aleve, Anaprox, DS, and there's some others, Celebrex uh, is a brand name for, and I'll probably mess up, uh, Celecoxib, 
uh, as then, uh, a C- oh gosh, I got it. Good. And acetaminophen and the brand name, one of the more common brand names would be Tylenol. So let's start with talking about these non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Dr. Tucker, what impact do we know that these type of medications have on natural conception? Well, there's a few reviews out there that mention that some analgesic use during the follicular phase can result in, a, in sporadic ovulation, uh, mainly because of the mechanism of action. These are either COX-1 or COX-2 inhibitors, which is a, it's a cyclooxygenase inhibitor, which is important in prostaglandin production. Both, prost- both types, uh, the prostaglandins uh, that affect your uterine motility and your uterine contractility and the, and the prostaglandins that are responsible for the, the transmission of pain. So if you interrupt uh, the production of prostaglandin, your, your, the pain level is reduced. So that's where it can probably, and prostaglandin is very important in monitoring or, or manipulating, shall we say, your uh, menstrual cycle. So if you disrupt prostaglandins, you can you can, in high doses, disrupt your follicular cycle. You mentioned um, Celecobix, Celebrex, Mm -hmm. which is actually at this point still only available by prescription. Uh, That has been shown quite readily to disrupt menstrual cycles. Okay. I should have mentioned that that was not a uh, over-the-counter. Got it. All right. Okay. So, uh, Dr. Beltzo, when you have patients that are coming in before they start treatment, is there any, what do you recommend as far as the use of NSAIDs? So this is a very interesting question of, you know, so many patients and, and people using medications over the counter for pain relief. Like for example, uh, when a woman might get her period, it might be really uncomfortable. So a lot of women might take a, a non-steroidal like an Advil or Motrin for their menstrual pain uh, or even headaches and things like that, that might be beyond uh, menstrual discomfort. So when you're trying to get pregnant, we do recommend that you, uh, during your menstrual cycle, you can take what works for you. And around the time a woman might be ovulating to limit a little bit more uh, the use of the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, more using Tylenol would be better than an ibuprofen, for example. Uh, There are some limited studies, as Dr. Tucker reviewed, that may, when people are trying naturally or with some of the fertility medications that could affect the ability of the egg to ovulate. And so when the egg is ready to ovulate, uh, it could block that from happening. Okay. Now let's move into, let's say people have not been, your patients have not been able to conceive naturally with timed intercourse, and they are considering fertility treatment. So Dr. Beltzos, how do you approach the use of insets for your patients who are then moving into either IUIs or IVF or any other form of treatment? So we, when we're looking at couples who are trying to get pregnant and they might be doing fertility medicine to help them ovulate or enhance ovulation, uh, we would recommend less use of the the medications that might be in a non-steroidal like indomethacin or ibuprofen. And the reason for this, again, may be that as this egg is trying to ovulate, these could suppress 
the good inflammation that's needed for the egg to be able to come out of the ovary and release. And so if you're taking medication, for example, like Clomid or Letrozole and doing timed intercourse or intrauterine insemination, um, those during that time, it would be helpful to, I think, hold on the use, especially higher dose uses of those medications. There was a study that showed that those high doses significantly delayed ovulation. But as Dr. Tucker said, it's not an all or none thing. I was going to ask one question. Would you recommend, is is acetaminophen a safer alternative for pain relief during that conception? That's great, Dawn. Yeah. Acetaminophen is something else that if you do need pain relief for something, going to acetaminophen, which for the brand name would be an example like Tylenol would be better than something like ibuprofen that might be on your counter as Advil or Motrin are examples of that kind of medication. Okay, got it. And what about IVF? There was an interesting study that, you know, using IVF, we actually don't want the egg to ovulate because, you know, we want to be able to get the egg directly from the ovary. So there was a a study looking that using the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, again, like Motrin, may prevent early ovulation, and they were actually helpful, and they prevented um, IVF cycles from being canceled. What we find, Dawn, is that for women, as we age, the ovaries are sometimes a little more delicate, and... uh, and it's not always listening to all of the medications we're giving, giving the ovary to not uh, ovulate too soon. But women, you know, as we approach 40, they do tend to ovulate faster. And, and if the egg ovulates, the cycle would be canceled. So interestingly enough, in that case, um, it might have been helpful, you know, in that study. Okay. So we've talked about female fertility. Let's talk about the use of NSAIDs with male fertility. Dr. Tucker, what is known about our, our, is male fertility impacted through any of the uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories? Yes, it is. The thing that's interesting with men is that it's reversible 99% of the time. If they take something and it has a negative effect, then you can wait three months and it'll be essentially gone unless it's something really detrimental to the germ cells. But guys have a bigger problem. There are some negative results, at least in rats, uh, in men taking paracetamol or acetaminophen, which is Tylenol. They see lower fertility and overall, um, you see more abnormal forms and infertility patients as well. It is an increased time to pregnancy. So there is some deleterious effect to the fertilizing ability of the uh, the sperm and uh, the thinking the thinking is that it reduces prostaglandin and testosterone th- synthesis so that's uh, paracetamol okay well so then dr belt says when you have a couple that comes in do you recommend that the male the man also avoid use of NSAIDs Yes, uh, that's a really interesting question, because not only may it be a problem, as we're talking about for women, it it may cause some fertility issues. And looking at some of these smaller clinical trials, they did show that if someone was taking a fair amount, even for a couple of weeks, that their testosterone went down and that it may decrease sperm counts. 
So although a little bit occasional use of this is fine, we really want to think about the prolonged exposure and use less is more. So the the basic idea is that less is more. Got it. So we want to avoid, and it sounds like from what you're saying, the that it's the excessive use or the greater use that causes the most problem. Yeah, or or continuous use. You know, you've got, you know, I have some of my patients are professional athletes and their job is to work out for hours a day. And they tend to, at times, you know, have strained muscles, et cetera. And they might be using, you know, uh, this at a frequent level, whether it's a high dose for a short amount of time, but even that continuous use too could have an impact. That's such a good point that, yeah, it's not just the uh, quantity. It's also the period of time that one is, is taking it. That's a really good point. This show would not happen without the generous support of our partners, and these are organizations who believe in our mission of providing unbiased, medically accurate information to the patient community. One such partner is Cryos International Sperm and Egg Bank. They are dedicated to providing a wide variety of high-quality, extensively screened frozen donor sperm or eggs from all races, ethnicities, and phenotypes, and they do it for both home insemination and fertility treatment. Cryos International is the world's largest sperm bank and the first freestanding independent egg bank in the United States. All right, now I would like to talk about the impact on pregnancy. At this point, somebody has gotten pregnant. Do we need to, and we're, of course, wanting this pregnancy to carry to term and a healthy baby about the end of nine months. So what is the impact of the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, Dr. Beltso, on pregnancy? Interestingly, in the first trimester, there were some concerns about using non-steroidals and the risk of miscarriage. And the FDA recently has come out that halfway through the pregnancy, at around 20 weeks, they recommend, the FDA recommends not using any of the Advils or Motrins. Uh, One of the concerns is that it may affect the kidney function, even of the baby. And if the kidneys aren't working as well, the baby's amniotic fluid can go down and that can be very concerning. Another thing is that at the third trimester, as the you're rounding the bend, um, using a non-steroidal can also interfere with how the heart of the baby functions. And it can make one of the blood vessels in the baby's heart close before it should. And baby's hearts function a little differently when they're in mom and then when they're born, just because of how the oxygen flows through their body. And uh, you don't want to switch off that system by using non-steroidals in the third trimester because that can cause issues for the baby too. So, you know, once you are pregnant, I think you have to be real careful with the use of non-steroidals. Let me ask a question. You mentioned specifically problems associated with ibuprofen. Is, do we need to, is that, is it just ibuprofen that they are concerned about after the week 20? Or is yes. it, okay, so it's just ibuprofen. So if, again, if you, again, check with your doctor, obviously, but in general, if you're needing pain relief when pregnant, it's best to avoid ibuprofen and use one of the others. Is, am I hearing you correctly? Yeah. 
Yeah. Now, interestingly, acetaminophen might be, let's say someone has a headache or some pain, Tylenol or acetaminophen might be the way to go. Another thing that's very important to comment on, Dawn, is the use of baby aspirin. And baby aspirin might be categorized in non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. However, baby aspirin is often used in women who are at risk for having issues with blood flow. Uh, So if they might have risk for a blood clot or having good circulation, we do use baby aspirin. And the second use of baby aspirin that some of the listeners might know that they're on is to prevent or lower the chance that they would have preeclampsia. So there's some really interesting studies as well that your doctor might have you on a baby aspirin for those as two examples where we do use a non-steroidal. It it is, yeah, but but it's a, and it's a a lower dose. Dr. Tucker, before we move off of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, any thoughts on research that you have found as it relates to pregnancy or conception? Well, the the comment about low dose uh, aspirin is, is very, very important. Um, And, and I agree that um, with Angie, that the that the use of it, we would only recommend Tylenol if you really have a headache. Take some Tylenol. That seems to have the fewest uh, side effects. But the low dose aspirin is it can actually be quite beneficial, especially if you're also trying to become pregnant. It 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 ha- it seems to help the mi- microvascularity of the uterus. It can help with implantation. It can help with fertilization. There's there's some positive effects after frozen embryo transfer to uh, prepare the uterus, shall we say, for implantation. And a couple of things. Uh, one other thing is that you can do prophylactic use of low-dose aspirin at, if, at this age, in our age especially, but start early because if you're pregnant, there's been some really nice work that shows that it helps with um, previous losses, with previous miscarriages, and also with the prevention of preeclampsia. Just, uh, but you can start taking that ahead of time, and it's it's really quite an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. It helps if you are specifically also patients who have, um, I th- think it's called high sensitivity reactive protein issues, and they tend to be more prone to preeclampsia, and this will help the inflammation of of those particular proteins. So it's, okay. um, or if you have you know, heart disease, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, endometriosis, any of these other issues, low dose aspirin therapy is, is, is quite amazing. And um, oddly enough, doesn't seem to help guys that much, but for women, it's very important. (laughs) All right. Now let's move on to talking about another common over-the-counter medication, antacids. Dr. Tucker, first, if you could give us a brief intro as to the different types of antacids that exist because we, they're, not, they're not all made the same. No, no, not at all. There are two types of antacids. There's the, the, the histamine 2 blockers, and those are things like Tagamet, Zantac, Pepsid, and these work by blocking the, the histamine receptors, thereby ultimately lowering, indir- more indirectly lowering hydrochloric acid secretion in the, in the gastric mucosa. And you see these receptors throughout. Mm-hmm. And what is the other type of antacid that's commonly available over the counter? The other types are the protein pump inhibitors, mm-hmm. and these block 
gastric potassium hydrogen sensitive HPase, which is located on the surface of the gastric mucosa, and it directly inhibits gastric secretion. And the most common that I, I've heard is uh, like Prilosec and Nexium, and th those okay. are fairly effective as well. Okay. So Dr. Belsos, what do you recommend for your patients about taking antacids, either when they first come to you or even before they come to you and they're trying to conceive naturally or when they move into infertility treatment? When people have an upset stomach, and sometimes that can be like you said, before you're pregnant and while you're pregnant. So something that's real easy to take that I think uh, can be very helpful for GERD or heartburn, acid reflux, our Tums, as an example, those are really great to consider um, before or after. And most people get really nice, uh, good relief you know, from that. On the other hand, some of this, uh, you just have to be careful. Uh, the other interesting thing too is, is uh, modifications of behavior. So for example, eating, let's say you're pregnant uh, and you're taking your Tums. The other thing to do is to uh, sit up after you eat. Don't lie down and try to eat and then walk around a bit. Don't eat and then go straight to bed. Getting that out of your, you know, the food past the stomach and being able to do some of that is really important. Another thing is some of these medications can also have calcium, which supplementing calcium just need to be thoughtful as well, because it can worsen stones like kidney stones, for example. And, mm -hmm. you know, these things uh, that we can add into our, into our system, you just have to be thoughtful about that too. Mm -hmm. Okay. Dr. Tucker, anything else on the impact of antacids when trying to get pregnant, either naturally or through fertility treatment? Not, not that I came across. Okay. Again, you know, it's one of those things, you, you, you know, you overdose maybe, but no, it really doesn't seem to have an effect. Even during pregnancy, the evidence is sketchy. Uh, mostly the research has been on the, the fetus or on the child those effects. But as far as actually affecting the pregnancy is very little that's that you can, you know, take to the bank type of thing. So okay, well, then, Dr. Really. Tucker, what do we know about in the impact of antacids on male fertility? Now that's a little different. And you had asked about like omeprazole. That's also something else that you can take mm -hmm. if you're having some of those concerns. Uh, it seems that that appears to be safe. What What's the brand name for that? What's the brand name for omeprazole? Omeprazole is Prilosec. Okay. So taking Prilosec seems to have less impact. Yeah. Okay. And it's, it's one that if you're on, you know, people have studied that as well. But uh, as you had mentioned in the beginning, make sure that you talk to your doctor specifically mm -hmm. about what medications your body might need mm -hmm. to while you're pregnant and what things you should, you know, exactly. try to switch and be mm -hmm. off because, you know, different people have different situations and they sure. might need something beyond what we're talking about here. Okay. Excellent. Dr. Tucker, anything on male impact of male uh, fertility? Yeah, there's there's quite a bit. To be honest, the worst, uh, let's just say the worst medication out there is Tagmet, which is cimetidine. 
that has that can lead to decreased number of ejaculated sperm. Um, if it has negative effects on morphology, motility. It also can increase intracellular calcium in sperm, which can lead to sperm death. In lower testosterone levels, you see more DNA damage on the sperm. It can be reversible. It's a, that's what I said. It's the joy of, of spermatogenesis is that it's it affects the sperm that are developing. It doesn't affect the germ cells. And I know that there is were some some studies years 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 ago that high doses of tagamet can lead to erectile disorders and impotence. So. Don't take tagamet if you're trying to get pregnant. But are others other antacids are safe for men who are trying to conceive? There are a couple. There's Zantac, which is ranitidine, and that's right now. There's there's very con- there's conflicting data on it, but it's it's not as bad as tagamet. Famotidine, which is pepsid, is probably the the least of the evils. Uh, the if there were any negative effects seen, it also affects intracellular calcium. It can affect, but it's one of those things you know don't. If you use it occasionally, it's not going to be an issue. Okay. It's just long-term use or chronic use, as we've mentioned before. Do you appreciate the evidence-based content like this podcast that Creating a Family brings each week? If so, we would be so grateful if you would tell us in a comment or a review wherever you listen to today's interview. Your feedback helps us get this information out to more people who are creating their family and looking for information and inspiration. So pop over to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever it is that you're listening. And please either give us a star rating or please write a comment. We really appreciate it. All right. Now moving to another over-the-counter drug, antihistamines. Dr. Tucker, why don't you uh, lay out the difference between first-generation and second-generation for us? Okay. Antihistamines, one of my favorite medications. <laughs> I'm an allergy girl. <laughs> yeah. All of us uh, with they're, allergies they're, appreciate this. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Sing the praises. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Go ahead. So it's a, it's a very big issue. So we have two main types of histamines. Uh, they're both there's well, they're they're generally histam they're H1 receptor blockers. Those are the, the, the main ones. There, there's mast cell inhibitor, but those are, are by prescription only. So the the first generation H1 receptor um, agonists are the the ones that have more of a, a sedative effect, like chlorpheniramine, chlorotriamatin, or Benadryl, Benadryl being the most uh, widely known. And then there are the second generations, which they've developed to minimize drowsiness or eradicate the drowsiness. And these are the ones we all know, Allegra, Zyrtec, Clarinex, Claritin, Tavist. The most common would be uh, fexofenadine, which is Allegra, and lorathidine, this is Claritin, and cetirizine, which is Zyrtec. Okay. Now, Dr. Belso, let's talk about the impact of antihistamines on conception either natural or through treatment? Yeah, I think these um, antihistamines, which especially as we come into the spring and uh, summer times that so many people are using these to help them, you know, get through the the breathing times. Interestingly, the antihistamines are are something that you want to think about because the uterus also has histamine receptors and the uh, embryo itself Um, makes a little histamine. So one study said it may decrease the blood flow to the uterus. And so 
do we want to be careful? Overall, we do let people use antihistamine medications that they're using. It's not something we say that you shouldn't do because there's no current evidence that they they reduce fertility. And in some interesting protocols, there may be some questions that it might be helpful for implantation and increasing blood flow to the uterus, for example, with these medications to uh, sometimes calm the immune system down. But we don't say that they need per se to stop taking it, but maybe uh, overall limiting it to the medications that will keep your body functioning, uh, if you will. (laughs) And your nose and your nose open and your body functioning. Yes, exactly. Yeah, for sure. Dr. Tucker, what do we know about the impact of antihistamines on male fertility? This is something that was very interesting to me when I was in Holland, because we, if you have somebody who has, has wonderful sperm, it doesn't really make a, such a big difference what he's taking, unless again, it's something very chronic and then he's got other issues. But with, uh, but if they're borderline and especially if they're trying to do normal IVF or, or in, uh, intrauterine insemination, we do recommend that they limit their use of, of antihistamines because these can have a negative effect on sperm. Okay. Well, that's, that sounds good that we just know that they, they have a potential to have a negative influence, particularly if you are born, but again, this is all, it's all reversible. That's the joy. You can say, listen, you you know, your, your semen analysis isn't great. What have you been taking? We always question our patients. What, you know, give me a list of medications, even especially over the counter medications, because you disregard them. You think, oh, medications means what my doctor's prescribing. Mm-hmm. Oh yes. I had a really bad cold or I've had, I'm having terrible allergies. I go, yeah, what are you taking? And then they give me a list and some of them are, are less that uh, than others. But um, if we say, listen, can you get off it for a little while or try something different, get a prescription uh, mast cell inhibitor, which actually can be beneficial to sperm, as opposed to these regular antihistamines, which can be detrimental mm-hmm. if, if he's just taking it constantly, because he's just, everything's running. So, you know, there are options. Sometimes they just have to be sneezy and until we get a good sperm sample and then they can go back to their antihistamines. See, the other thing, they don't have to live with the pregnancy either. So, I mean, they don't have to do it. And so that's a little bit different, but you know, it's a, it's a way of managing everybody so that they're not losing their minds. So that leads us into the impact of antihistamines on pregnancy. Dr. Belza. Yes. So, uh, you know, some of these medications, we say Claritin's okay but trying to avoid, you know, Allegra is important. Antihistamines like Zyrtec, Benadryl, those are also uh, seem to be safe during pregnancy. So when you're talking about your particular thing, they're overall, again, safe, but just make sure you talk to your doctor if you're on any of these antihistamines once you are pregnant and try to stick with the ones that we just mentioned. Yeah. Most of the antihistamines in my, in my research that came up that very few had what they called an FDA category worse than C. So, which basically means that either there was no studies that are negative or no animal studies, or if it's a category C, then there are some negative effects in animals, but no human studies. So 
I always say it's okay to use, just use with caution. Okay. Now moving to another common over-the-counter medication, sleep aids, which is a general category, obviously, and includes things that uh, are actually medications, but it also includes supplements that people take to help sleep. Dr. Beltzos, what are some of the common sleep aids that you see your patients using and, and how do they impact conception? These are, uh, some people use the supplements like melatonin. Um, that one is a popular mm-hmm. medication. And interestingly, with melatonin, it also may help. Uh, there's some studies looking at some of these supplementations to help get pregnant through um, improving egg quality. So these micronutrients. And then again, it may be something that also seems to um, help sleep. <laughs> Wouldn't that feed on each other? I, I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm trying to understand. So melatonin, you're saying, could actually improve egg quality generally, but it also is the reason pe- most people are taking it is to improve their sleep. And we know improved sleep can have an impact on egg quality. So uh, not to be, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, not to make a pun, but what comes first, the chicken or the egg? No, really. Yeah, it's so funny. Uh, but that's really <laughs> important, I think, for us to think about how important sleep is. And we know that that is uh, incredibly important for sperm production. It also is very important for the body to rest in a woman. And of course, while someone's pregnant. On the other hand, it can cross the placenta. And in one animal study, adding too much melatonin can negatively affect how much the mom weighs, the baby weighs, and you know its ability to keep the baby safe. So don't use what you don't need and just be careful using things again, that could be concerning. Like for example, another one is NyQuil and that one can make us, it's a product that can also uh, make us sleepy so it can help with sleep, but it's not safe for the pregnancy. Okay. I did want to move into talking about the sleep aids that are non-supplemental, non-natural, and they would include things like the Tylenol PM, but we've already talked about the Tylenol part, but they also uh, over the counter have just the PM part or, or, and we've already talked about Benadryl or NyQuil, which we've, we've talked about the impact there, but what about some of the ones that are the, the sleep aid parts of those? Dr. Tucker, do we have any indication that they impact either conception or pregnancy in women? And then we're going to move to talking about men. Well, in a real quick review, there's uh, another um, sleep aid, Unisom, and the active ingredient of that is um, doxylamine succinate. And interestingly, there was no negative effect on pregnancy if taken as directed and taken only when needed, of course. Um, And it might even help with uh, nausea and vomiting during pregnancy. So, you know, they're sleeping and not vomiting. What about magnesium, which is also a common supplement that people take to aid sleep? Dr. Belza? I think magnesium and pregnancy, especially when some people are deficient, you know, people wonder if they should supplement. And without it, they might be at higher risk of having issues like high blood pressure and premature labor. So it it can be something that 
you can take. It again depends on how much you do take. The recommendation for pregnancy is around 350 uh, milligrams per day, and depending on how old uh, the woman is. But you also, people ask if they should avoid it during certain times. And magnesium is also in, for example, antacids. And they say that you should avoid that towards the end of pregnancy because it might interfere with um, uterine contractions. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think you have to uh, think about that. And then, of course, uh, sometimes in labor and delivery, we use magnesium sulfate to help prevent complications from preeclampsia. All right. So... With magnesium, check with your doctor uh, if that is a sleep aid that you are utilizing. Uh, Dr. Tucker, what about any of the sleep aids, either the melatonin, the magnesium, or any of the Unicom or any of the uh, the PM part of the painkiller parts of the Tylenol PM, the NyQuil or whatever? What is the impact on male fertility? Well, I looked at the effects of diphenhydramine or Benadryl, Aleve, leave PM, essentially um, Unisom, melatonin, and valerian. We haven't touched on valerian, which is a strictly herbal supplement. And as far as what I could find is that diphenhydramine and doxylamine succinate, which is Unisom, they actually are beneficial, slightly beneficial to, to sperm. Uh, melatonin is a a very powerful antioxidant, and they've um, it has been used as an additive in in vitro preparations. For instance, it, it tends to improve motility in sperm after thaw. So, when you were talking about the chicken and the egg, melatonin would be your chicken, I guess. It's uh, <laughs> it it does have a direct effect, and and it doesn't necessarily go via via. So I was that was a bit of an eye opener because this is new to to add actual me- melatonin to your cultures. Keeping in mind that that was that was not the people the the patient was not taking the melatonin in what you're describing that is exactly of, so yeah, it's just yeah. a direct effect on the germ cell itself. So gotcha. also okay. the as some of the the things I've read about oocytes is that it can have a direct effect on any kind of oxidative stress that the oocyte might be undergoing. That's okay. basically its mechanism of action. Okay. And then, uh, as I said, valerian, um, sketchy information. You always want to watch out. Um, for guys, it doesn't seem to be anything very negative. The only one paper I could find that it it may actually have a beneficial effect on the type of motility that you see, because there's different types of motility. And this is the, the one you want to see that, that would be uh, more fertilizable. Hmm. Interesting. This show would not happen without the generous support of our partners, and these are organizations who believe in our mission of providing unbiased, medically accurate information to the patient community. Another partner is Reproductive Medicine Associates of New York. They are a full-service fertility center specializing in in vitro fertilization, egg donation, egg and embryo freezing, and LGBTQIA family building. They also do reproductive surgeries and male reproductive medicine. Highly individualized patient care is offered through 13 reproductive endocrinologists and fertility specialists and a urologist and a full-service support team. All right. So, Dr. Beltzos, what other common over-the-counter drugs do you see your patients coming in when I'm sure one of the first things you ask is, what medications are you taking? What are some others that we haven't talked about that are fairly common in your patient population? 
This is something very interesting, but I would say CBD is something mm-hmm. that people are using for a variety of things and sometimes quite frequently. And the use of cannabis can vary between people. You know, you might have one male patient who comes in and uses a small amount and his best friend uses it, you know, every day and has 10 kids. But this particular gentleman may have issues with sperm movement, Uh, the motility piece, the sperm is just swimming very slowly, and the count is a little bit compromised. So we, you know, continue to see these regulations changing state by state. And the use is quite common. I've seen much more use than ever before. And it has been linked in both human and animal models to reduce fertility in men. So if uh, this is something where your sperm count is lower and you do use cannabis in some form, and it comes as we are learning in many different forms, smoking and oils and gummies and et cetera, that the use of this, um, you need to be careful when you're trying to get pregnant. And how you've mentioned men, how about with women? Certainly in women, we also recommend limiting that exposure, obviously when trying to get pregnant. After you ovulate, we want you to consider yourself pregnant you know, just because as the blood supply connects to the baby, those early exposures might be compromising. And of course, when you're pregnant to not use this. Okay. Dr. Tucker, any other common over-the-counter medications that we have not covered? Well, one thing that I I was interested in as well is um, herbal supplements. And I found that they could be quite detrimental if taken alone in high quantities or in conjunction with any other over-counter medication. For instance, things like chamomile, fennel, or ginger, these can all um, shorten your gestational age, gestation duration. Ginger in high quantities has been shown to lead to smaller skull sizes in the fetus. So there's some growth issues there. Interaction is a real problem. Like for instance, again, going back to ginger, the FDA gives it a category C. So there is quite a, a, an abundance of negative animal studies. Um, not, not a lot in humans. It's hard to have them take something and then look at, at the, the, the detrimental effects on the fetus. It would just be by accident. So it would be mostly like case studies and things like that. But the one thing that you want to be careful is ginger and aspirin together can exacerbate the effects of aspirin and, and increase any kind of um, platelet deaggregation. So it, it has a blood thinning effect, a greater blood thinning effect. So that those are the things you just want to take. They're not all healthy, great, wonderful. Oh, if I take this and I take all my herbal supplements, I'm just going to be even better. It might have a real deleterious combined effect. So that was yeah. one thing that was interesting. The other thing that we didn't talk about was skin creams. Wait, bef- just a second. Before we move there, let me, because uh, I, I, I do want to speak a little more about herbal supplements. Uh, oh, yes. Okay. Because it's, as you point out, I think that more and more patients are now, and, and honestly, I think patients in particular who are trying to conceive, one of the first things everyone does is they go to Dr. Google and they you know, are told what uh, supplements would help, potentially help. And, you know, 
uh, supplements, it seems natural and, and it sure as heck beats going to see you, Dr. Belt. So we, you know, no offense, but we don't want to have to, to, mm-hmm. to, to receive fertility treatments. So lots and lots of patients are trying herbal supplements before they even come to you. So what are some of the common herbal supplements that, that your patients, if they are going to the internet are told to try, cause it might improve their fertility. And, and what do you recommend? So for our patients, again, uh, micronutrients and vitamins can be very, very helpful to your body, to your fertility and pregnancy, but everything in moderation. So some things for men are the antioxidants uh, can be very impactful in amino acids like L-carnitine, zinc, vitamin C, vitamin E, and CoQ10. And these can help polish the DNA and boost the energy of the sperm and help the sperm develop. Other things that can be helpful for egg quality uh, is to refuel the mitochondria. And again, that can be done with CoQ10. And there's uh, other studies with NAD, which uh, has been found to be helpful. Um, once you are pregnant, you want to be mindful of these supplements that you've started. You want to make sure you're taking a good prenatal vitamin with folic acid and omega-3 fatty acids. And there are some medications and herbs that you want to avoid once you are pregnant because they, although they may be good when you're not pregnant, but when you are, you have to be careful like saw palmetto and golden seal Dawn Quay, these are examples of ones black cohosh people use sometimes when they're trying to uh, balance out some of these hormones. Mm-hmm. So we, we do want to be careful. So look over the ones that you're buying uh, on the internet uh, that are labeled for fertility. And then once you are pregnant, what is safe once you're pregnant and, mm-hmm. you know, sticking to, to being more conservative once you are pregnant. All right. Now, Dr. Tucker, let's talk about, because I agree with you, when we're talking over the counter, it's not a medication, but uh, my nightstand is full of creams and my shower is full of hair products. And I'm sure I am not alone. So what are some of the skin and hair care products that, what does some of the research indicate as far as how that might impact fertility? Let's start with female fertility. Well, for fertility on its own, it doesn't won't well, have a real effect. The, the The biggest issues that I found was with the pregnancy and and teratogenic effects of, of creams like um, uh, anti acne creams, for instance, that contain isoretonin or retinoids, and they can result in severe birth defects if taken in large quantities, again, you know, you're slathering yourself. So a lot of women break out during pregnancy. So this, this is a, an issue and there are no warning labels. That was the thing that the, many of these reviews would say is like, these are detrimental for use during pregnancy and nobody says, do not use it pregnant. And another interesting um, point that came out that I read was that during a pregnancy, the, a lot of women suffer from melasma, getting those dark spots. You know, you might, I call them the cow spots. And so they use products that contain either some kind of bleaching pro, uh, product or a hydroquinone, which is, at least in studies in rodents, is, uh, is, is very detrimental to fetal development. 
and it has real, and it has carcinogenic effects. So, you know, it's, it's not, you just, it's again, it's like a category C type of thing, but the FDA just doesn't pay attention to something that's topical, even though it is absorbed into the bloodstream and can affect you. So these are just, there are other options out there. You know, that's the thing is like, don't take anything that has these particular ingredients in them because many things are absorbed through the skin and we don't, we don't think about that. No, absolutely. Dr. Beltzot, I will give you the last word. What in, uh, hair and skincare products uh, do you caution your patients on, if any? You know, this is so important and it's a provocative topic because we do expect that things, like you said, lotions and sunscreens and these uh, products that we use for keeping our hands clean and parabens, which are um, in many products, sunscreen, body lotions, Mm -hmm. you know, it's in our makeup, like mascara, uh, hand soaps, shampoos, all these have products in them. So if you look for ones that are paraben free, they may not necessarily be safer, but we do know that these products can affect sperm and they are also endocrine disruptors and other endocrine disruptors that are are in our food. Some of the European Union ban some of these in cosmetics, but the US FDA has not limited the use of these ingredients and yet they could be harmful to your hormones. So being thoughtful about our makeup and our skin products is something that we cannot take for granted. Perfect. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, the endocrine disruptors are a are an issue, particularly for someone who is struggling to conceive. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Angie Beltzos and Dr. Kathleen Tucker thank for being you. with us to talk about the impact of over-the-counter drugs on fertility. And one more time, let me remind everybody to keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice. To understand how it applies to your specific situation, you need to work with your infertility professional. Thanks for joining us today, and I will see you next week.